Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hey, friends, M here, your podcast host, and I'm so glad you're here again with me this week. And as you may have already noticed, I am showing up in your podcast app early. I know, yes, I know. I just released an episode last Wednesday, but I simply had to jump in this week with a bonus episode to share some thoughts and insights I've discovered in my studies, just in time for Easter. But before we get much further in today's episode content, though, I would like to take a moment right now to encourage everyone to be sure to go back and listen to OOBT episode 12. That episode was last year's Easter bonus, and in it we took a close look at each of the days of Holy Week leading up to and through Easter Sunday. I'll be sure to provide that link in the show notes. As for today's episode, though, this one is another one of those times when themes are not only lining up, but on repeat, so to speak. So for that reason, we're going to pull some threads I found in my studies during this season. There's something about those Marys, plus multiple mentions of resurrection. Resurrection in the life, the tomb was empty. Well, you get the idea, right? Okay, so here's a quick look at where we're heading with these thoughts. Because yes, it all does seem random and unrelated, but I so hope I'm able to do a good job of sharing with you the connections I found over and over again in my studies. Now back to that overview listing, which includes Jesus' references to resurrection and the Gospels found in the New Testament, Mary of Bethany and her sister Martha, plus her brother Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead prior to Holy Week, which actually set in motion the events leading up to his arrest. Then, Lazarus later sitting at the table during Holy Week, in which Mary anoints Jesus with oil for his upcoming burial. Finally, we will pull that resurrection thread a bit further as we take a closer look at Mary Magdalene's response to the empty tomb, to Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. Phew! We have a lot to cover today, my friends, so let's just get right to it, shall we, by taking a 30,000-foot view of resurrection, as discussed in the New Testament of the Bible. Jesus actually discovers resurrection in several places, particularly in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here are a few examples. Number 1. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, demonstrating his power over death and foreshadowing his own resurrection. Number 2. In Matthew 22, 23-33, Jesus argues with the Sadducees about the nature of resurrection and the afterlife. Number 3. In Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection to his disciples. That verse says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Number four, in Mark chapter eight, verse 31, Jesus again predicts his own death and resurrection, saying, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. And number five, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection and explains to them the significance of what has happened. These represent just a few places where Jesus discusses resurrection in the New Testament, one of the most important events in the life of Jesus Christ, and in each one of our lives, too. So good. Moving on, 
John chapter 11 tells the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in verses 1 through 44. In the New Living Translation, it reads, A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany and with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, There are twelve hours of daylight every day. During the day people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go too and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, Your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises, at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, The teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him? But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry when he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Wow. Amazing. Simply amazing. We just saw the chapter begin with Jesus receiving news that his friend Lazarus is seriously ill. However, Instead of rushing to Lazarus' side, Jesus remains where he is for two more days. 
When he finally arrives in the town of Bethany, where Lazarus lived, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Upon arriving in Bethany, Jesus is met by Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, who express their grief at their brother's death. Jesus is deeply moved by their sorrow and asks to be taken to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried. There he orders the stone covering the entrance to the tomb to be rolled away and calls out, Lazarus, come out. To the amazement of all those present, Lazarus emerges from the tomb, still wrapped in burial clothes. Can you even imagine what it was like for the sisters, the crowd, for Lazarus? Think about this scene. One of your best friends has died. Inconsolable, you cry not only at his funeral, but for days afterward. Then another friend of the deceased comes to visit. He starts saying strange things. You listen to him intently because your friend's sisters have great respect for him, but you can't understand what he means. Finally, he commands that the grave be opened. The sisters protest, but the man is adamant. He prays loudly, looking up to heaven. Then after several seconds, your friend walks out of his grave alive. Alive, friends. Truthfully, at some point in time, I remember hearing this thought mentioned about what we see happening here. And in truth, it's so thought-provoking that it has stuck with me for years now. Can you imagine what it was like for Lazarus to be removed from heaven to return to earth? To wake up on the inside of that tomb alive once again. What was that like to return to earth after experiencing the beauty and glory of heaven? Was he torn? Was there a part of him that was a bit sad to be back? Wouldn't you have been eager to know just what Lazarus saw during those four days in heaven? It is mysterious that nowhere in scripture do we learn what Lazarus saw after he died. If you knew him, wouldn't you have asked him? Wouldn't you want to know what happens after your heart beats for the last time? Wouldn't you pester your friend until he told you everything he saw? I'm 100% positive I would have. (laughs) The raising of Lazarus, though, from the dead is a significant event in the Gospel of John, as it demonstrates Jesus' power over death and foreshadows his own resurrection. The story also shows the depth of Jesus' love and compassion for his friends, as he weeps for Lazarus and comforts his sisters. However, it also sets in motion the events that lead to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion as the religious authorities become increasingly threatened by Jesus' power and popularity. With that in mind, though, I do want to explore a few more thoughts and perspectives that I found in my studies. So let's hear from the Finding I Am study from Lisa Turkhurst. It reads, Let's be sure our timeline here is correct. Lazarus became ill. His sisters Mary and Martha sent Jesus a message to tell him, Jesus waited two extra days where he was and then headed to Bethany, to where Lazarus was. In that day, tradition said the spirit of the person who died hovered over the body for three days and then departed. John eleven seventeen tells us that by the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus had been dead four days. All hope was lost. Lazarus was dead. You could say there were a lot of blanks left unfilled, but Jesus had a purpose. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, Martha went to meet him on the road. You've been there, haven't you? When someone you love is diagnosed, when the timetable of someone's life is cut too short, it's gut-wrenching, it's not fair. Jesus got word that his friend was sick, yet he waited. He seemingly did nothing. The scriptures say that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Here's where things get peculiar. Verse 6 says, So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. If I love someone and they get deathly sick, my initial reaction would not be to wait around a few more days. I'd be frantically trying to find the next flight to get to them, or jump in my car and drive there as fast as I could. Jesus' response on the surface seems peculiar, but some careful observations throughout the rest of the story give us insight into the possibility for why Jesus delayed his departure. Jesus was very specific as to why he was going to see Lazarus. 
Verse 4 tells us that the purpose was for the glory of God to be displayed through this illness and that the Son of God may be glorified. As Jesus was drawing near, Martha runs out to meet him and begins an incredibly faith-filled conversation. John eleven twenty one says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha's faith was real. She believed Jesus could do miracles. She knew he could heal people. But this situation was hopeless, right? Lazarus was dead. As we read verses 21 and 22, we see Martha engaging in a conversation with Jesus that many of us find ourselves in. Imagine the agony and pain of knowing if Christ had been present, he could have saved her brother. In the midst of this reality, Martha still confesses the might of Christ, acknowledging that Jesus can ask anything of the Father and it would be granted to him. But Martha was missing the point. She was looking forward to a future resurrection when Jesus wanted her to focus on what he was going to do in the present. She had given up hope of seeing Lazarus alive in the present. And who could blame Martha for any feelings of hopelessness? It's hard to find when we find ourselves walking through devastating circumstances that appear like they're never going to get any better. But I believe God wants us to embrace this powerful truth today. Lord, give us relief from our unbelief. We don't have to know all the details. We don't have to know the whys and the hows. But we can trust Jesus will accomplish His purpose. Even if our circumstances aren't good, His purposes always are. In verse 23, Jesus responded, saying that Lazarus would rise again. God may answer your prayer just the way you hoped, or He may not. But at the end of the day, will you trust His view of things? Will you trust that He knows the best way, even if you don't? That's the question for all of us. Every day. Will you trust Him? Even if? Divorce doesn't have the final say. Cancer doesn't have the final say. Infertility doesn't have the final say. Rejection doesn't have the final say. Heartbreak doesn't have the final say. Doubt doesn't have the final say. Even death doesn't have the final say. We may be facing a delay, distraction, or even devastation for a season, but it is not a final destination. Resurrection is coming. For some of us, it will be like Lazarus and happen miraculously this day. But for all who trust in Jesus as Savior, whether our circumstances change or not, there is eternal hope because His resurrection power has the final say. In eternity, death doesn't win. Jesus does. Let's not miss Jesus' question to Martha in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus begins with saying, I am, and ends with, do you believe this? That's the question for all of us, my friend. Will you believe Jesus at His word, even if He delays His response? even if you can't ever see the fruit in this life, even if the blanks remain blank and the questions unanswered. Will you believe even if? Even if. Let's now pick up in verse 28 with Martha calling her sister Mary to come see the teacher. It's interesting to see and compare the reaction and interaction between Jesus and these sisters. Notice they both begin with a belief statement. If only Jesus was present, their brother would be alive. From there, everything is different. Mary taken over by grief and pure emotion, begins to weep, compared to Martha who responds intellectually and reasons through her grief. As Mary and the crowd that followed her weep, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 33. Look closer at that Greek phrase used to describe Jesus' response. The word used here refers to anger, outrage, and emotional indignation. Why do you think Jesus would have this strong feeling as he observes Mary and the crowd weeping? He was angry, frustrated, perhaps because those he loved those whom he was closest to on earth did not understand him or his purpose. Despite all the miracles they'd seen, despite all the teaching they'd heard, they still did not understand that he was the resurrection and the life. Just a few verses later, we come to the shortest verse in the Bible, which simply states, Jesus wept. 
If we read this too quickly, we can assume that Jesus wept for Lazarus, whom he loved. But why would Jesus weep for someone he knew he was going to raise to life? Again, we see that Jesus' tears are motivated by the sight of destruction and despair in this world, marked by sin and depravity. Jesus cares about the condition of humanity and the effect that sin has on the people he loves. Jesus' weeping isn't a sign that he doesn't have the power to right the wrongs. He does, and he did. God sent his son to die on the cross to eternally wipe away the effects of sin. And in due time, there will be no more death, no more sin, no more weeping. I don't want us to skip over how Jesus went about raising Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, verses 43 and 44 tells us, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Jesus' words bring life. When God speaks, things happen. We see this in Genesis even. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. God formed the earth by his word. And Psalm 119, 25 says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Has God's word brought you life lately? Are there any seemingly dead places in your life that you need to declare his word over? God is the creator of life. He is the resurrection and the life. He gave us life, and he gives us eternal life because of his sacrifice, and he offers us abundant life here and now. Eventually, Lazarus would die again. Though he was raised to life on earth, he wasn't yet resurrected. Death will happen to all of us, but death does not have the final say. Jesus has made a way for eternal life. His resurrection power will come to every believer in the dark hour of death, and every believer will be resurrected to eternal life. That is a glorious and great exclamation point to our grand love story with God. But I believe our ability to fully experience His abundant life hinges on us getting into His Word and letting His Word get into us. We don't have to get derailed by the darkness, dismantled by defeat, or drawn out by doubt. We can let His Word speak life into us. We can let Him use it to give us relief from our unbelief. Beautiful, so beautiful to consider. And as another point of interest here, we recently heard a message titled Waiting for a Miracle out at H2O Church Attica in week one of Life Church's current series, Miracles. This was just another thread to pull given both the Mary and the resurrection themes that were discussed at length since this message took a close look at John 11 and the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. There were so many good perspectives and details that I wanted to be sure to direct your attention to, so in the show notes I linked the message just in case you want to lean in and learn more. There's even some personal applications that we can take from this story in scripture found in that message, so it's definitely worth your time and a listen, I promise. So in continuing on, let's hear now from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19 from the New Living Translation version of the Bible. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor, Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him, and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. 
Then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God! Hosanna! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hail to the King of Jesus! Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was the fulfillment of the prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, There is nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. So, just to clarify here and be sure that we understand what's going on from the start, in the New Testament, there are two accounts of a woman anointing Jesus, one of which is attributed to Mary of Bethany. The first account is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, and the second is found here in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. In the Gospel of Luke, an unnamed woman, who is described as a sinner, quote-unquote, anoints Jesus' feet with perfume and wipes him with her hair while he is dining at the house of a Pharisee. The Pharisee is critical of the woman's actions, but Jesus defends her, saying that her actions are a sign of her great love and faith. In the Gospel of John, Mary of Bethany is the woman who anoints Jesus. The account takes place shortly before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and Mary anoints Jesus' feet with expensive perfume and wipes him with her hair. Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, objects to the waste of such valuable perfume, but Jesus defends Mary, saying that she has done a beautiful thing for him. The anointing by Mary of Bethany is a significant event in the New Testament, as it is seen as an act of deep devotion and love for Jesus. It also foreshadows Jesus' impending death and burial, as Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet with perfume was a traditional Jewish practice done to prepare a body for burial. What an amazing act of service and honor to consider. Can you envision being in the room alongside Mary and Lazarus and Jesus in those moments of the anointing? Or of standing at the roadside as a part of a crowd crying out, Hosanna! as Jesus rides into town on a donkey. Oh my. Consider these thoughts from First Fives That You May Believe study in a devotional titled The Fragrance of Gratitude. John chapter 12 verse 3 from the ESV version reads, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. As I walk through the front door of my home, the smell of warm garlic bread and pasta with Alfredo sauce greets me. I don't have to ask what's for dinner because the aroma wafting through the room tells me. In John 12, Mary takes an alabaster jar of perfume and anoints Jesus' head and feet, and the unique fragrance alerts the guests that something special is happening. This account of Mary anointing Jesus is separate and distinct from the account in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, where a nameless woman anointed Jesus' feet at a Pharisee's home. Mary's gift to Jesus is extravagant, worth an entire year's wages. Imagine taking your annual salary and pouring it onto someone's feet. Completely outraged, Judas argues over the waste, quote-unquote, rationalizing how they could have sold the perfume and given the money to the poor. This isn't his real concern, of course, for John reveals his true motive as a thief. So while Judas bickers, the scent of perfume lingers in every room in the house. Mary's actions must be viewed in light of what is just unfolded in John chapter 11. Jesus has raised her brother Lazarus from the grave. Now that same brother is sitting at the table with Jesus and their friends. Nothing but sheer thankfulness prompts her actions. The fragrance of gratitude fills their home. And it causes me to consider, 
does the fragrance of gratitude fill my home? I don't mean literally with perfume. Rather, does an attitude of gratitude permeate my home, my thoughts, my words, my actions? I confess that gratitude isn't always my automatic response. I can grumble and complain all too easily over some silly thing that didn't go the way I hoped it would. And I'm keenly aware that my own children are watching. Are my kids learning a life of gratitude based on what they see in me? In truth, there are some days when I quote-unquote get it right, and plenty when I don't. I must come to the feet of Jesus each day, thanking Him for everything He's already done on the cross. It's all about the cross. In Lazarus, we see a reflection of ourselves. Lazarus was once physically dead, but now he dines with Jesus. In the same way, we were once spiritually dead, but now we are alive in Christ, and one day we will feast in His presence as well. In Mary, we see a sincere worshiper assuming the nature of a servant, a slave even, as she cares for his feet. To let down her hair in the presence of men was shocking, and in Jewish tradition, this simply wasn't done. But Mary isn't concerned with anyone's opinion except Christ, and his is the only opinion that matters. Her gift is a response of tender gratitude. This is my prayer today, that a pure gratitude for Christ fills my being so much that it overflows into my home. Now hear more from First Fives That You May Believe study about John chapter 12, verses 1-19. through 19. Throughout his gospel, John builds a case for Jesus as the Messiah. In John chapter 1, he records John the Baptist declaring Jesus as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Then in John 11, the resurrection of Lazarus is proof that Jesus can conquer the grave, not only for Lazarus, but also for himself. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is about to become the Lamb of the Passover feast. John chapter 12, then, is a key turning point in John's gospel, because he tells us the Passover feast is just six days away. Then he devotes the final two-thirds of his book to the last week of Jesus' life. Mary anoints Jesus six days before the Passover feast and the crucifixion, and the perfume she pours over his feet is typically used to anoint deceased bodies prior to burial. By her actions, she foreshadows the death of Christ. In six days, the cross of Christ would become the culmination of all the history up to that point. When God rescued the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, He took the blood of a lamb and covered the doorposts of their home. This caused the angel of death to literally pass over each home. And every year since, the Hebrew people were to remember this as a Passover feast, with all of it pointing to Jesus, the perfect lamb sacrificed during the Passover as the ultimate and final atonement for our sin. Mary's private preparation for Jesus' death is followed by a very public one. In the next section of John 12, Jesus enters Jerusalem in much fanfare, But it's not the kind of procession you would normally see of an earthly king. Jesus doesn't do anything the way an earthly king would. Typically, a king would enter a city on a tall stallion, striding through the public streets with a caravan of captives behind him, along with all the plunder from a recent battle, to display the military might of the king. This is exactly the kind of king Israel wanted, too. And yet, while the Jews looked for political savior, someone who could deliver them from Rome's oppressive regime, Jesus came as a spiritual savior the one who would deliver them from sin's controlling rule. Riding on a lowly donkey, a sign and a declaration of peace, Jesus enters the city in humility. He makes an entrance for sure, but is not like any entrance ever made by any king. Jesus shows us what a true king looks like. Quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, the people cry, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 is fulfilled by his triumphal entry into the city. Jesus the humble shepherd king, is coming to lead his sheep to salvation. And friends, I simply couldn't move on today without sharing this from Jess Conley titled, You Could Still Smell the Perfume. What was Jesus thinking about during his last week of life? What was he thinking about on the cross? 
We'd know some small snippets. He agonized. He served his friends. He mourned over the sin in the church and outside of it. He felt betrayed. He asked God why. He submitted his will. He felt alone. He taught incredible principles. His eye was on eternity. And it's hard to imagine he wasn't thinking about how he smelled. On Monday of Holy Week, four nights before he'd be crucified, Mary anointed Jesus with enough oil to cost a year's salary. Of course, he'd already told the disciples that he would be crucified, and he went so far as to declare that she was anointing him for burial. But still, they didn't understand. I heard a friend mention recently that theologians conjecture that that much oil poured lovingly and worshipfully on his head, Jesus would have smelled like a king for the entire week leading up to his death. He may have even been able to smell the perfume on the cross. Goodness, did you hear that last part, my friends? He may even have been able to still smell the perfume while on the cross. Mary's act of obedience, so impacting to Jesus, so touching to consider, right? Okay, so we're going to jump forward in our reading to the book of John, chapter 20, where we will see how the themes of Mary and resurrection continue to play out in our studies together today, this time with Mary Magdalene. John, chapter 20, reads, Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then they hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who were you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried, Rabbani, which in Hebrew means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I have been sending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. Okay, my OOB tears, let's begin processing this by listening to this excerpt from Lifeway Women's Easter study called Behold Your King. Take time to consider what these moments would have been like for Jesus' followers. After following the man they believed to be the Messiah for years, he was suddenly gone. They must have wondered what was to become of them or the truth that Jesus had taught them. Where should they go from here? Should they just walk back to their fishing nets and families and homes and forget the whole thing? Confusion, hopelessness, and despair. Had it all been for naught? And then, on the first day of the week, a weeping Mary was met by a man who called her by name, whom she immediately recognized as Jesus. Her fear and despair turned into joy and purpose. Her life would never be the same again. And Jesus does the same for us. He comes to us in our fear and uncertainty and brings peace. He comes to us in our restlessness and brings purpose. Jesus is alive and that changes everything about our tomorrows. The Lifeway Easter study continues. Try to imagine if someone you love more than anyone else died and was buried, and then they appeared to you three days later alive. 
How utterly amazing would that be? Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus on the morning he rose from the grave was nothing short of astonishing. Even if you think you know this story well, let's try to experience it with a new perspective, because this is not just a story. It really happened. In your mind's eye, let the scene play out as if it were in a movie. This incredible encounter of Jesus and Mary Magdalene is one of my favorite interactions Jesus had with his followers on earth. It is powerful and tender and reveals the kindness of Jesus. I wonder if Jesus let Mary be the first to see him after he arose because he knew she needed it most. If you've ever lost a loved one, you know the terrible pain and despair you experience just after that person dies. You're in shock and your memories can be blurry. But then what if suddenly, a few days later, you saw them and held them again? Can you imagine that? What would you do? If I would have seen my father alive a few days after his death and heard him say my name, I think I might have fainted. I dreamed of that moment so many times. Grief displays powerful emotions and is a process. When Mary came to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices, she was mourning him intensely and doing what she thought she could do to still serve him. She lost him, but she also lost what might have been with him as Messiah and King. Mary also experienced the trauma of watching him die in agony. She was among the women who followed Jesus during his days of ministry on earth, and she was there when he died. Then she, along with another Mary, watched Joseph of Arimathea put him in the tomb. Jesus had freed her from the torment of seven demons. The Bible does not tell us when or how that happened, but that he had literally rescued her. In turn, she followed him in her life and even in his death. And that morning at the tomb, in the middle of her despair, the voice she knew well and loved, the voice she had heard teaching her so many times, the Savior who had freed her from torment, spoke her name, Mary, and everything changed. She clung to him. His gentle instruction for her to let go of him meant she must have been hanging on for dear life. She could not keep him there because he had another purpose, and she could not relate to him as she had. However, there's a beautiful juxtaposition in that moment. Jesus was taking care of her overwhelming individual need, yet at the same time moving toward taking his place at the right hand of the Father, thus finishing the mission of rescuing her and all of humankind from sin and death. What a beautiful Savior. Jesus is always both our saving King and Good Shepherd. We can cling to him in our sorrow, in our joy, and in our soul-piercing grief, and he will be with us. Even if we let go, he will not. Because of Jesus, I am slowly making it through the loss of my earthly father, my dad. Because of Jesus, my father and I both have salvation and will see each other again. Because of Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection, all who trust in him will be saved. Though his work has sweeping implications for all people for all of eternity, this tender moment in the garden with Mary shows the heart of Jesus to love the one, to meet the need of the broken, to give hope to the despairing. He met Mary where she was. He stands ready and able to meet you and your every need also. Oh, my heart. Okay, friends, let's consider this thought as we wrap up this episode with these words from Jess Conley. Did you know that women were the first Easter proclaimers? The first friends that God entrusted with the good news. They were gals. And do you remember what Jesus told them? Don't be scared. Don't hold on to me. Don't keep this news to yourself. Go get the boys and tell them it was all true. It's almost Easter, OOB tears. The resurrection is real. The resurrection changes everything, friends. We've got voices and stories and hope in our hearts. It's time to get busy, amen? It's time to use what we've got to stop sitting on the truth and keeping it for ourselves. Let's go and tell the good news of the gospel. Jesus is alive. 
Oh, there is so very much that we simply do not have time to dig into from Holy Week and Easter, but I'm hopeful that the time we have spent together has helped all of us see the events of this week with fresh eyes and a teachable heart, has helped us to identify and understand a bit more of the threads I found in my studies during this season. There's something about those Marys, Mary of Bethany, Mary Magdalene, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, resurrection, the tomb was empty, he is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Hosanna and hallelujah. Before we end our time together, friends, I would like us to take a moment to join together in prayer. Father God, thank you for the gift of hope you gave us on Easter morning. Because of you, we know that no problem is too difficult, and even death does not have the power over us. Thank you for the gift of joy you gave us when you were resurrected. Because of you, we know that no matter how challenging life may be, in the end we will rejoice again. Thank you for the gift of love you gave us when you laid down your life. Because of you, we know that there is no sin too great to separate us, and we are incredibly valuable to you. Thank you for the gift of life that you gave us when you left the tomb. Because at Easter, we know this world is just a beginning, and we will spend forever in heaven with you. We celebrate you, Jesus, with hearts full of praise and gratitude for who you are and all you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, my OOB tears. Please note that the next episode will release two weeks from today when we pick up where we left off with Joseph, sitting in prison. There's so much more to come in the unfolding story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. So in the meantime, though, could you do me a favor and share this podcast with three or more people? And please go to your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and review, because that is the absolute best way to help others find out about this show. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time.